and welcome to That Tech Pod, the world's number one tech podcast in the world, self-voted around e-discovery, cybersecurity, data privacy, and tech innovation. I'm Laura Melstein, and I am losing my voice. And I'm Kevin Albert, and I have my voice, so a lot of this might be on me today. Each week, we're talking to heavy hitters in the industry to help us break down these topics. Today, Kevin, who are we talking to? Today, we're talking to Hugh Rhodes. Hugh is an expert on data privacy and ownership. He has firsthand experience on how 24-7 surveillance and zero privacy can shape and mold people. After finding his way from Princeton to Stanford, then to NYU Film School, where he directed a film with Steve Buscemi and Sarah Silverman, he worked at Experian and LifeLock for more than a decade and saw firsthand how the data industry operates. Today, Hugh is the founder of Friday, a free, easy-to-use app that extracts your mobile ad ID for you and notifies you when and companies are selling your location history so that you can have them stop. And then they report back to you with their responses. Hugh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. My first question is simply, how'd you go from film school and, and you know doing films to data privacy? Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, well, I was broke. It's <laughs> um, fair. You know, making a movie was fantastic. I definitely took a circuitous professional route. And I can kind of explain or justify that more. But I found myself after film school, I wrote and directed a movie. It played in theaters. I went and saw every show and ate popcorn. It's not overrated. If somebody says like, hey, you can direct a movie, you should get up and walk away from your computer and do that right now. But awesome. the movie was neither profitable nor well-received by critics. And I found myself, you know, without a way to, make an income and a buddy of mine who worked at Experian called me and said, Hey artist, are you waiting tables or would you like a job? And I very much needed a job. So uh, I knew nothing about Experian, but I, I took the gig and the challenge that they were hiring me to solve was in 2005 with the beginning of the reporting of data breaches, really for the first time, Companies were losing laptops and they were calling Experian saying, you got to, I got to do something. I'm going to get sued here, right? The very beginning of data breach. And the reason I got hired is because Experian had felt at the time, none of the executives that were there then are there now. So this isn't an indictment of anybody there now, but that this was just a waste of time, that nobody cared about privacy, nobody cared. And that these, these phone calls were just bugging and harassing them. But the guy who hired me had this instinct, like, you know what, actually, maybe people do care. Uh, and was it worth thinking about building a product which became data breach? And, you know, the punchline is, of course, there was. And that ended up being an extremely lucrative business for them. And it was a good gig for me. I understood the technology. I understood the data. Film school, weirdly, had been a great primer in how to tell a story which helped with sales. And so I enjoyed a career there. I was there probably for nine years. And everything that I did, I felt good about morally. I felt like we were on the right path. We were helping people with their privacy. But I got with some time of what was happening in other areas and, and the amount of surveillance that was happening. And that, that really, really bothered me. Even in around 2008, I was like, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. And I filed for, for and was granted a patent on owning your own data, you know, and this is pre-cloud and pre-mobile. So if you, I mean, the patent's online and you can read it, it feels antiquated, 
I'm describing a database that you might have where you would have all your data and you might let people, but, but the underpinning was this sort of gut instinct, which I think everybody has that privacy is important. I mean, no matter what you think about technology, most people have blinds on their windows. Most people understand that there is an inner and an outer life and that you should be the one to control that. But it wasn't clear how to get that done. There really was no mechanism for it. The data business is a funny business. You, it's like healthcare. You kind of have to know it from the inside. The reason that most attempts for people to reclaim their data fail is because from the outside, there's a lot of ways that you could get it wrong if you don't know how the money works, if you don't understand how the economics work. So it was just there was no way to get this done for a very long time. And it really wasn't until GDPR passed where I think where many people saw a burden, I saw an opportunity. And the opportunity is in the right to know, in the right to be forgotten, while that's a burden on companies, it's an extraordinary shift in power back to the consumer. Like, if you think about it, Facebook didn't really steal our data. Uh, we signed a contract and we gave it to them. And that's a pretty robust contract. They're not dumb. They have good lawyers. So it's very clear that we signed something which gave them ownership of our data and they invested money to secure it and structure it. It's like signing a contract for a property where another person starts to build. That all happened. And then GDPR comes along and says, yeah, even though you signed, even though it's all square, you can just null and void that and take it back. Just go ahead, take it back. And, and you don't even have to pay them anything for it. You don't have to reimburse them. You can just have this asset, which you gave them fair and square and just take it back. And I th that was extraordinary. It, it, it was like, it was like the Homestead Act in the in the 1850s. Like all of a sudden, wait, I, I I stake four corners of land and now I own this land. That's absurd. But like, okay. So I think GDPR, the plus side of GDPR, really opened up the window to give people the power finally to take their data back. And I mean, how do you overcome? Well, obviously, we talk about data privacy a lot in this, so I'm, I'm you know pretty interested in this. But how do you deal with the fact that there are so many different variations of these laws, right? You know, California is saying one thing, you know, Virginia is saying another, and then you have you know states like Texas where they're just not saying anything. How do you deal with the sort of huge variability in the U.S., especially here, but also globally, right? You know, obviously, you know, I, I used to live in Ireland, so for me, I'm very familiar with GDPR and the way that works. How do you deal with the dispersant level of of, of, of enforcement? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it depends what acts it is you're trying to grind. If you're trying to establish total privacy, then yes, um, kind of area by area, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, it, it becomes complicated. I do think the optimistic, if I'm optimistic about something that feels like a global solution, we can look back to the data breach business where I started. There is no federal data breach law. And, and yet... Every company that breaches does something about it. Incident response is now, you know, a billion-dollar industry. So I think as more and more states come on board with something, even if Texas never comes around, pragmatically speaking, you know, a, a, a Home Depot can't have Home Depot dot Texas for Texas people. Like eventually, you just have to deal. And I think as you see in data breach, there is this general concession that data breach needs to be handled, and if it's not done uniformly. At least it's done. And I think the same thing will happen with respect to privacy. 
my focus is data ownership. And fortunately, that 80-20 rule totally applies. The 20% of the companies have 80% of the data, and those 20% of the companies are also global companies. And so those 20% of the companies are going to play nice. Facebook's going to play nice. Google, Spotify, et cetera. These are the majority holders. Yes, it is possible that a weird phishing website, I don't mean phishing as in spam, I mean literally like real casting, that weird little website may not actually want to comply and you might be in trouble if you want your your the purchase your purchase history back. But by and large, with respect to data ownership, the giants are are complying because the risk of them not complying means litigation, breakup, DOJ, it gets pretty hairy. So I'm optimistic about data ownership, even with incomplete coverage. But like, how do you overcome the fact that you said, obviously, we signed a contract with Facebook. Facebook, the problem you have is that people just scroll to the bottom of the terms and conditions and just accept blindly. No one you know, reads those. I work in the legal industry, and even I don't read all of the, those. You can only work, you know, you only do that for so long before you go blind. How do you overcome the fact that people have already sort of blindly accepted things and don't really know, you know, what's out there? People don't really have a sense as to what data Facebook has or Spotify has. And, and most people sure. are willing to even just say, you know, well, it's not me. I don't care. You know, it doesn't really bother me that Facebook has some of my information. I think you know, where people come a lot around is when they find out exactly the enormity of the amount of data that's out there. But for most average users, people don't really realize. What do you say to those folks? How do you overcome that? Yeah, l- listen, I mean, you, you've, you've, you've put your, f- your finger on a real issue plaguing cybersecurity in general, right? The people who know, know, but most people don't know and most people don't care. And there isn't enough time and energy and money in the world to educate a population, right? So go to any cybersecurity conference, and you'll just hear people just wishing if, if everybody understood. And I think the closest I've, and, and this was the bane of our existence when we were at LifeLock, you, you just cannot convince everybody to act prudently. I'll tell you, when I first, really on my first day at LifeLock, I, I met with the chief product officer and I was in sales. And he sat me down and he said, okay, Hugh, your job is you've got to convince the market to understand how important this stuff is. And just lit into me about all the things I was supposed to be able to somehow hypnotize the market to doing. And I said to him, like, okay, let me ask you a question. What'd you have for lunch? And he said, I had a hamburger. I was like, okay. So you know that that's going to kill you. Like, that's not even a probability. That's not a one in six are victims of, right? Like, literally, that hamburger is terrible for you. And it has probably taken, you know, a couple minutes off your life. And, and yet you have the burger. So how am I supposed to convince a population of a risk that might exist when we all willingly, blindly go do the things that we know are bad for us, right? Sure. So I think the answer is to frame it in a way that it benefits people. I think the closest I, that I can think of in an example, I mean, look, you know, this is what we're working out of my company, but more broadly, if you look at Credit Karma. Uh, Credit Karma is a good example of a company which indirectly resulted in a huge percentage of the population having a greater awareness about their data without them needing that to be the forcing function. Most people, you know, one third of all millennials were on Credit Karma at one point. And most people went to that because either they wanted a loan or they might want some offers. Now, the end result is they see their credit report. They see the errors, they take ownership of their data, but they're in it for the game. 
right? 401k matching is another example. You can you can lecture people all day about the importance of saving, and some people will, or some people won't. But when it's perceived as something like 401k matching, we're like, oh, I'm getting something. Well, all of a sudden you get this explosion in savings indirectly. I, I do believe that the only way for people to embrace the responsibility of cybersecurity is if it is framed and perceived as in terms of some gain. And if you look at 401k matching, that's just arbitrary, right? Like that's just like a, a like a little like spit, like like a bonus. It doesn't even actually have to le- be rooted in any type of deep cyber understanding. It's perfectly fine if if gain ends up with pe- more people taking more responsibility for their cybersecurity. So just to jump on that, a few questions. So when we're looking at things like Web3, it's really important. It's giving users back the control of their data. And I think people don't realize why it's important to have control of their data. I don't think, I think you made a great example when you're looking at like LifeLock and things of that nature. There are things that people do on a regular basis and they don't even realize how it's impacting them. And that's something we talk a lot about on the show. So my question is, what's the difference with your company between you and LifeLock? Why did you start your own company? And how do you feel about things like Web3? How do you feel about users having more control of their data? So LifeLock is in the business of charging people for protection, right? And it's the old adage, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. So I mean, I will tell you, after 15 years in the business of charging people for the product, my view is even when you are paying for the product, you're still the product. You know, the every, in every meeting, in every company where you pay a subscription for anything, where you pay a fee for anything, the majority of the meetings in that company are, how can, how can we get more out of these customers? How can we get more out of Kevin? How can we get more out of Laura? How can we get them to pay more, pay more, pay more? That is their priority. That is corporate growth. So I think after a long time in this industry, I was like, this is just two sides of the same coin. One side is is taking advantage of your data. And the other side is charging you to protect something which you never should have had to pay for anyway. I just felt like there was a third way. And it came back to that notion of, of personal gain. So here's the economics. There are around 490 data brokers registered with the state of California. If you go to the DO, uh, their attorney general website, they have them listed. The definition of a data broker is a company that profits from your data without a direct relationship. Okay. So if you go to those 490, there are surpri- some surprises. Deloitte is a data broker. NCR is a data broker. Oracle. Uh, I don't know what they're doing selling my data, but they do that. If you remove the companies that also do a lot of other stuff like NCR, you're left with around 400 pure play data brokers. And I wanted to know how much money they made. I don't really trust things like a Gartner analysis. So I went through and I added it up by hand. Every single company, if they were publicly listed, I I grabbed the revenue. If they were private, I went to Dun & Bradstreet or or, the Zoom Info or other companies to estimate revenue. And for the 400 companies I add up, that they made $69.2 billion in revenue last year. $69.2 billion, 400 companies. 
That's astounding. Okay, so if there's that much money at stake through companies that you don't even know exist, how in the world would you not recreate some economics where that makes sense, where you have what you want and the market is served? It just seemed like absurd. And so the answer was not to extort more money from the consumer. The answer was to deliver something better to the market that was already willing to pay $69.2 billion for creepy data and just direct some of that revenue back to the consumer. It, it didn't seem impossible. The, uh, you need to understand a couple of things about how the data business works. And Laura, I'll get to your Web3 uh, question. You need to understand a couple of things about how the data business works in order to replicate those economics. The first is data is what's called non-rival. That means the same asset can be sold again and again. Experience sells your credit report to a bank for roughly 29 cents, maybe a little bit more sometimes, but you know, 29 cents. And last year in North America, they did $3.5 billion. So how do you get to $3.5 billion, 29 cents at a time? Same, selling the same thing over and over and over again. So the first thing to understand is that the data brokers don't sell your data, they sell queries. They sell multiple queries off the same data set. Background checks, FICO, lead gen, these are all queries and they're monetizing the queries. So the first thing was we needed to think about a way where you owned your data and what you sold was not the data set, but sold queries to replicate those same economics. And I felt like it was worth starting a company where you could divert that revenue back to the consumer. And that could be your 401k matching. That could be the thing where you would take your data for personal gain and end up with more control. And, and less intrusion. Web3 turned out to be really important to that, not so much because of like NFTs or the tokens, but really this question of who controls the data. When I first started out Friday, it was not a Web3 company. I was going to do an identity version of Credit Karma. I was going to do something where you could pull your data down and maybe I'd inbound offers for you. And some really smart folks said to me, well, how are you not going to recreate Experian then? Now you're the data source. And I was like, well, but I'm a nice guy. Like, I, I would never do that. But, you know, Ancestry.com, I think, sold to private equity. You know, when you're a private company, you don't determine what happens. And that's a big data set. So what was interesting about Web3 was really distributed governance. The fact that the, the, the actors in an entity could govern the entity. Because the answer to who, why trust me actually could be don't trust me, right? If we make an ecosystem where everybody owns their data and the software is the thing aggregating it and presenting it back to the market in a unified way so that they can get their lead gen, their background checks, their analysis, machine learning training, AI, like, and if that data stays distributed where the users are the ones who own it and make it available and govern that software, well, now you've made it resilient to getting bought by a private equity or by Experian or by some other data hoarder. So Web3 became the mechanism where I could in good faith pursue encouraging people to pull down their data without recreating another Experian. So can you kind of go back a little bit for a second and, sure. and kind of tell us exactly what is a mobile advertising ID and is this just something people should just delete or shut off? What oh, sure, are the, sure, sure. Um, the downsides to just simply getting rid of this information off your phone? Sure, sorry. So. The app itself is something we made when we were first focused on Web 2. 
the data ownership and monetization is something which we will be launching. But the mobile ID is really important. And the reason when we when we decided to shift from Web 2 to Web 3, you know, we didn't know if we would succeed. So we're, there's a chance that like this is the end. And we realized this is right as the Dobbs ruling came out. And we started hearing reports about bounty hunters and vigilantes buying location data of women visiting Planned Parenthood. And we were like, that is the worst thing ever. And it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Swap out you know, Planned Parenthood for a place you would not want your government tracking you. And that is just the most dystopian thing. The idea that a person for a couple hundred bucks could go buy your location history. Terrifying. So... Before we switched over, we looked at what we'd had and we're like, okay, at the very least, we can offer something to the market that solves this problem. And the reason that this problem is particularly insidious is because unlike your name, your location, your email, the other PII, personal identifiable information that you have, you can't see your mobile ad ID. You, you can't browse to it on your phone. You need an app to extract it. So the creepiest thing that can be sort of bought about you, you can't even exercise your rights to stop because you can't put your hands on that ID. So we were like, okay, at the very least, we are going to release an app which extracts this mobile ID for you. And then we've identified the 60 or so data brokers from that list who specialize in mobile advertising ID and location history, and we'll automate this. We'll send them the cease and desist letter. You know, We'll pay a lot of money for lawyers to get it right from a chapter and verse. Because if the you know if the average citizen tries to exercise their rights, they put you through all kinds of, of hoops. They really make it difficult. But we wrote the, the the smart letter, and even you know big companies like Snowflake and Oracle, when they get the letter, they immediately respond. They've even automated responses, and at the very least, we figured we could help people clean up their digital history. But yeah, I mean the the reason the mobile ad ID is important. This is a this is a particularly creepy example of a much bigger problem. The reason you should care about your privacy is not because of what you've given to one company or another. It is the collusion between companies without you. It is the conclusion and the decisions that are made without you. And I'll give you my standard, most terrifying example. Back to Experian, they sell a product which makes a lot of money for them. Uh, so much so that I believe the woman who was the division president for this is now the North American president. So it's doing pretty well. Um, and here's what it does. God forbid uh, you get hit by a car and you're knocked out and they load you into the ambulance and the EMT fish your wallet out of your pocket and look at your address and they send your information to the hospital. But sirens are racing, railing and you're racing to the hospital. Okay, while you're in route, the hospital sends your information to Experian who will decide based on whatever, I don't know, whether or not they think you can pay the emergency room bill you're about to get. And if Experian decides that you can't, again, when they market this, they market the speed because they're racing the ambulance. They'll tell the hospital in time for the hospital to divert you to another hospital farther away. Now, okay, hospitals got to make money, but that is not what you thought was happening with your information. Just feels right? pretty feels pretty shitty right there. That was a dark twist. Didn't I'm sorry, see that but coming. no, no, it, it 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 is true. It is dark and 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 it is so tempting. 
to like kind of want to grab people and say, don't you see what's happening? This is terrible, right? But what I learned from filmmaking is that you got to move people emotionally and there's just a limit to the number of people you can scare. There's a wonderful movie. I would just say that my team watches a lot and I think it's a good, it's, you know, for folks in the security business, there's a movie called No. No is about the marketing campaign to overthrow Pinochet. In, in the 80s, Pinochet had a, a general uh, election, yes or no, should he be dictator for life? And the no vote was, no, you should not be dictator for life. We should hold an election. And it's a true story about the marketing campaign to mobilize the country to vote no. But what they realized at first, the first version of the marketing message was terror, all these bad things that are happening. And these very, very smart marketers realized that, well, that may be true, but nobody's going to vote for that. That doesn't move you. And so they came they came around to this idea that they should market democracy as fun, right? That that the no vote was about fun, about empowerment. And it's a marvelous lesson that even when the stakes are extremely high, literally life and death, even when the need for people to take action is life and death, you still need to appeal to a sense of joy and pleasure and gain. You cannot scare everybody to take the action you need them to take. So yes, it is dark and I live with that. And I understand the, I understand the dangers of the surveillance economy. I understand that I understand that what the data is going to be used for, you know, those cute dancing robots that they make videos for those robots aren't for dancing, right? Like the collusion of data and surveillance and automation has some pretty, pretty negative paths, but even still, the only way people are, are going to get on board is if they feel joy, gain, positive accretion, empowerment. That is the only way. At least that's what I believe. Wow, that's a lot. And I definitely appreciate all that you said here. This has been really interesting for me. Again, for me personally, this is not really like my area of expertise. And so fascinating and, and, and successfully scared in this one when people come on and kind of provide this level of insight. And so I definitely appreciate the, the time. I definitely appreciate this. I'm definitely going to check out this movie. No, I also would recommend our audience check out your movie, St. John of Las Vegas. And, and I just want to thank you for coming on. I really appreciate the time here. This has been a great great chat here. I really, I'm, I'm definitely scared and I'm going to try to figure out how to do all this and, and figure out what I can do to you know help myself personally. It, it, it I feel I'm, I'm definitely hanging up feeling like a little sad. It doesn't have to be quite so, I mean, it's a very serious topic, but it doesn't have to be quite so dark. I actually do feel like we're, we're on the verge of shifting this tide. I think that the consumer rights uh, are quite emancipatory. Uh, they really, really do shift and even though they're lopsided, every big company is terrified of them. So it really is a great opportunity to shift that ownership and control. I, I, I feel sad if people listen to this and end up feeling hopeless or or let, have less hopeful than when they started. Hugh, you've been great. I'm sorry that I couldn't talk much, but I was listening and I agree with everything Kevin said. It's uh, definitely been an informative podcast. Again, I'm sorry I have no voice. Yeah, no worries. Oh uh, but thank you for your time, and, and we really appreciate it. Thanks, you. Thanks, you. Thanks. So, Kevin, we just talked to Hugh Rhodes, a very interesting guy. I really wish that I could say more, but clearly I can't. So why don't you tell everyone how they can learn more about Hugh and us and what we're doing? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I thought this was an interesting episode. As I mentioned during the episode, you know, this is not really my background. So for me, I'm always kind of fascinated. I actually think he left me both scared, but also in a hopeful way, a hopeful ma- fashion. So I am pleased with that. You know, definitely people should not be using your location ID. Personally, we always tell my daughter, like, be careful what you put into things, you know, don't use like the period tracking apps and don't use some of these other, you know, things. And so for me, I live in very much a dystopian kind of mindset. And so I, you know, knowing these type of apps, apps out there that will delete this and clear this are, are definitely, I think, a good thing. So for me, I, I do think that's a good thing. And I'm really actually pleased we had him on just to kind of get this message out there, not as a sales pitch, but just as like a good karma thing. <laughs> um, so for me on that side, I'm definitely pleased. Thanks for being, you know, thanks for, you know, listening to us. I definitely want people to help us out. They should go to wherever people get their podcast, go on, give us a five-star review. Um, people should go to our website and people should buy some merchandise. Um, Laura, anything else? Go to www.thattechpod.com. See you next week. See ya.